We come now, this morning, to the preaching of the Word of God. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn this morning to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. We have a lot to cover together this morning. And so we're going we're gonna to go to the Lord in prayer. We're going to ask for help again. So let's pray. Lord, we come to you today. And it's an awesome thing, Lord, to gather together in your name. God, we thank you for it. God, we thank you for the privilege of drawing near to you. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to dwell in your house. Lord, we thank you for gathering with your people. And God, we pray that you would increase our joy today. That you would remind us all that this is good for us, Lord. It is good for us to draw near to you, to dwell in your house, to gather around your word. Lord, we ask for your help. Lord, help us to hear this morning. Lord, we pray that you would be faithful to us and that you would give us what is needed today. And that you would exalt your strength and your sufficiency and the power of your word. And that you would give us what is needed. That you would fill our souls, Lord, with truth and with the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, we have a long passage that we're going to work through. Almost a whole chapter this morning. And because the passage is so long, I want to ask everybody this morning to stand for the reading of God's word. We'll stand and we'll read this passage together. Matthew 23, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues. And greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And, he, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind gods who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. 
For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to, ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind gods, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you are witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then. The measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. You may be seated this morning. This is God's word to Grace Community Church today. Again, we see Jesus in conflict and the conflict with the religious leaders in Jerusalem that we've seen in previous weeks has come to a point of climax by the time we get to Matthew 23. And the first thing that I want us to handle before we begin working through this passage is this question. Does Jesus sin in this passage? And I want you to understand the question. Earlier in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, Jesus taught 
He said, but I say to you, and then he said these words, love your enemies. Love your enemies. And so the question that I want us to work through this morning is in Matthew 23, does Jesus violate his own standard in the way that he speaks to his enemies in Matthew 23? Swiss theologian Ulrich Luss says this, Quote, in view of Jesus' own preaching, Matthew should never have allowed Jesus to speak so unfeelingly as he does in chapter 23. Charge laid upon the Son of God. He should have never spoke so unfeelingly in the way that he speaks to his enemies in chapter 23. Now, as we read through this passage, I want you to understand why would a charge like that ever be made? And as ridiculous as it is, as crazy as it is, why would that charge ever be made? And I want us to remember some of the words that we just read in this chapter that could be a tripping point for some as we read through uh, this chapter. The periodic sharp language that we've seen from Jesus has been scattered throughout Matthew's gospel, but it comes to a fountainhead in 23, chapter 23. It's more concentrated here than anywhere else in the gospels. Think about this. Jesus repeatedly uses offensive language in chapter 23. Let's briefly review. He calls the scribes and the Pharisees, hypocrites, four times in this chapter. Verse 13, verse 15, verse 23, verse 28. You saw that repeated phrase, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And that's not all. Jesus indicts these men as children of hell in verse 15. Blind gods twice, once in verse 16, again in verse 24. Blind fools in verse 17. Blind men in verse 19. Blind Pharisees in verse 23. Whitewashed tombs full of dead bones. And in case you don't know, them's fighting words. And we see that in verse 27. And again in verse 33, Jesus calls these men, you brood of vipers, a group of Serpents. And so as we read this chapter, you get the idea, okay? This is not Caleb. This is not a positive, upbeat, and encouraging way of speaking, okay? It's a severe indictment, right? And the repetition of three words throughout this passage. Show us just how severe the stakes are in chapter 23. And those three words are this. Woe to you. Seven times that phrase is repeated in chapter 23. Woe to you. That word is a pronouncement of curse. It's a pronouncement of doom to you. Condemnation to you. Woe to you. It shows us that this is the language of eternal punishment and God's righteous judgment is going to fall on these men for how they live and for what they teach. And so you understand the stakes in chapter 23. 
And so as we back up, we can understand chapter 23 as the tripping point. Jesus says in Matthew 7, love your enemies. And then the mockers see chapter 23 as the occasion. See, look right there. Jesus doesn't practice what he preaches. Jesus is a meanie in chapter 23. He's speaking like a meanie here. He's not loving his enemies. So the charge is laid upon the Son of God. Now, this is an age-old problem of grabbing one piece of the Bible without harmonizing it with the rest of Scripture. This is how you misinterpret the Word of God. You take a little piece out and you isolate it from the rest of the canon. It's an age-old problem. Human, human beings do not get to define what love is. And I hope you have learned that about yourself in this world. You do not get to define what love is. We don't. That's not our prerogative. That's not my prerogative or anybody in here's prerogative. God defines what love is. God's word defines the standards of righteous conduct. God's word defines love. And so a better question then did Jesus sin in Matthew 23 is this question. What in the world would provoke this kind of response from the sinless son of God? What in the world could he be responding to that he feels the need to come with this much intensity, with this much severity? And Matthew 23 answers that question. Religious hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy is smoke in the nostrils of Jesus Christ. It is offensive to him. Matthew 23 clarifies this. Here we see not Jesus being mean in Matthew 23, but instead what we see is perfect, beautiful, Sinless holiness in the presence of religious hypocrisy. In other words, Matthew 23 shows us the godly response to religious hypocrisy, not the ungodly response to religious hypocrisy. So Jesus' speech in Matthew 23 is holy speech that's directed towards religious hypocrites. And you can even sharpen this one more level, okay? Not only is it holy speech directed towards religious hypocrites, you can sharpen it one more level in noticing that it's, it's speech towards the scribes and the Pharisees. And so even more sharply and more pointed, it's towards religious hypocritical leaders. This is holy speech to religious Hypocritical leaders. Now just a word about the structure. The first 12 verses, Jesus speaks about these men, the scribes and the Pharisees. And then in verses 13 through 36, Jesus turns and he speaks directly to these men, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now the first thing to note about the group that Jesus addresses in Matthew 23 is found in verse 2. Jesus says they sit on Moses' seat. They sit on Moses' seat. 
In other words, they are seen in Israel as those who explain and expound and apply the law of Moses. They sit on Moses' seat. They weren't so much prophets that were receiving new revelation from God. Much like modern day pastors, they were to teach with an authority that was derived from the scriptures. They, they sat on Moses' seat. They claimed to speak in God's name and teach God's word. But Jesus indicts these men as hypocrites. They, they claim to sit on Moses' seat, but they don't do what Moses commanded. And so the best summary of the charge in this whole chapter is found in verse 28 where Jesus says this. You outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They are law men, but they're full of lawlessness. They're supposed to be expounding Moses, but they don't even obey what Moses says. And so the object of Jesus' scorn in Matthew 23 is hypocrisy. Appearing to be something before others that you are not before God alone. And so with that framework laid before us this morning, we're going to work through this chapter under four headings. Number one, the motives of religious hypocrisy. Number two, the actions of religious hypocrites. Number three, the outcome of religious hypocrisy. And then finally, number four, we're going to see what does Jesus has to have to say to us? How should we respond to religious hypocrisy? So we're going to work through these four points together this morning. Number one, the motives of a religious hypocrite. In other words, if you were to climb in their mind for a moment, this is what you would see. That This is how they think. This is their psychology, their worldview. And I want to mention several things here. What does Jesus teach us in this passage? That's wrong at the level of motive. Number one, they love themselves rather than loving their neighbor. Look at verse four. Verse four, Jesus indicts these men as those who tie up heavy burdens and then they put them on the shoulders of others. And then Jesus says, but they won't lift a finger to help them carry those burdens. Now, the language of burden here is a reference to the oral tradition. Okay. The Moses plus theology. So you have the law of Moses and then you have the oral tradition. And we see Jesus in conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes about oral tradition. All throughout Matthew's gospel, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. And so when, when Jesus says, you tie up heavy burdens, that's what he's talking about. Those commandments that go beyond the word of God. And you take that oral tradition and you bind others with it. You love to do this. This is what Jesus says. But not only is that a problem, there's another problem that you won't lift a finger to try to help them even keep those burdens that you bind them with. These are loveless men. They're loveless men. They did not love their neighbor. Contrast this with Jesus 
Earlier in chapter 11 in Matthew's gospel, look at what Jesus says about himself. Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so this is a, this is a mark. This is a, a distinguishing mark of religious hypocrisy that whatever else is going on in this person's life, they don't have a sincere love for people. They'll bind them up in a heartbeat, but they won't help them to keep God's commandments. They love themselves. They're self-indulgent, according to verse 28, but they don't love other people. And then the second point, it flows from the first. Not only do they love themselves and not their neighbors, they love the praise of man instead of the praise of God. So religious hypocrites have this disordered relationship with other people. Okay, They don't love those people, but they do love what those people can give them. Right? Praise. And you see it several times in verses 5 through 7. In verse 5, Jesus indicts them that they made their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Broad phylacteries and long fringes. Now, both of these have roots in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8, Moses tells Israel to bind God's word on their hand and as frontlets between their eyes. That's what Moses said. In Jewish history, they began to practice this in a literal way by attaching boxes on their forehead and, and putting Torah scrolls in those boxes to bind God's word on their forehead. And those boxes were called phylacteries. And Jesus' indictment here is what did they do? They made their boxes, they made their phylacteries broad. Now why in the world would you ever do that? That's exactly right. Why in the world would you ever make your boxes way bigger than somebody else's boxes? It's so other people would see how spiritual you were. How much scripture you knew. How zealous you were in uh, the word of God. Make those phylacteries broad, Jesus says. You love to do that. And then the same thing with the fringes. In, in Numbers 15... Verse 37, Moses commanded Israel to wear tassels or fringes on their garments. And Numbers 15 says it was to be this physical sign to Israel that when they saw that tassel or they saw that fringe, it was to be a reminder to them to keep God's commandments, that they were set apart to keep the commandments of the Lord. Well, Jesus indicts the Pharisees here that they made those tassels or those fringe, fringes extraordinarily large, big. Now again, why would you do that? 
So if that fringe is supposed to remind you to keep God's commandments, if I make mine really, really, really big, look how zealous I am for the commandments of Yahweh. They love to be praised by men. You see more of this in verses 6 and 7. They love to be recognized publicly. They, they love the place of honor, the seat of honor, and the titles of honor. Whether it's sit here, teacher, or greetings, rabbi, at the grocery store. They love it. They feed off of it. And so I want you to notice these two things together. They don't love people, but they sure love what people give them. Honor, praise. They crave the praise of men. And then notice how this works into this third point. Because they love the praise of man instead of the praise of God, what are they really worried about in religion? And the answer is the externals only. The externals only. You say, what do you mean? Because the internal stuff the stuff that people can't see, it doesn't give you any street cred. You don't, even get, you don't get any credit for that. Why would a hypocrite do the internal stuff that people can't see? They can't get the praise for that stuff. I mean, that seems so pointless. It's the external stuff that gives them what they really want, the praise of man, the public recognition. And Jesus indicts them for this, that they clean the outside of the cup, but inside they're full of hypocrisy. This is why Jesus indicts them of being full of greed and self-indulgence. And, that, and even that phrase greed reminds us that they're probably making money off of this honor that they're receiving from other people. Not just the seats of honor, not just the titles, but they're greedy men. Greedy for praise, greedy for the money. That they get from others. Now what can we learn from this point about the motives of a religious hypocrite? And we'll pause right here and we'll say this. You can learn, friend, you can learn this. That you are never in a more dangerous place spiritually than when you are faking it. Then when you are pretending, when you're going along and, the, and you're doing the external stuff, but you know you don't fear God. You're never in more danger than you are when you're pretending to be a Christian. When you know that there's no sincere to, desires to live before the face of God. When it's all performance before men... You are in trouble. And those alarm bells need to be ringing every time you feel that in yourself. Every time you see that in your heart. The Apostle Paul says this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so what I want us to see about this man-pleasing motive, this love of self, man-pleasing motive, is it's mutually exclusive with pleasing Jesus. In other words, this is one of the, you know, there are a lot of things in the world that you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have it both ways, okay? This is not one of those. 
They're mutually exclusive. You can either live to please man or you can live to please Christ, but you can't do both. It's a fork in the road, and everybody must make that decision. Am I a servant of Jesus, or am I a man pleaser? And so Jesus teaches us here about the motives of religious hypocrisy, but he also teaches us about the actions of religious hypocrites. And we'll work through several of these. Notice in verse 15... That they abuse God's mission. Okay? And the way I wrote it down for you is they they abuse missiology. God's mission that he sends his people out into the world to speak for him. To speak his word to the nations. They abuse this mandate. And it's it's a little bit surprising to me and maybe to you. That Jesus doesn't describe a religious hypocrite. As a couch potato. That you come to church on Sunday and you just sit on the couch the rest of the week and you don't do anything. That's not how he describes them. He describes them as extremely zealous. Full of energy and works in the wrong direction. Look at what he says in verse 15. They cross land and sea to make proselytes. Which is a word that describes a pagan convert to Judaism. Now break that phrase down. They're crossing land and sea to get their message to the Gentiles, to the nations, to to, to preach Moses to the nations. That's energy. That's industry. They're, 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 They're motivated to do this. This is not walking to your neighbor in your neighborhood. This is cross cultural missions. That Jesus is saying, you're doing this. You're crossing land and sea. But their approach is so perverted that he tells them that they make their converts just as much a child of hell as themselves. Now this, this, uh, this verse is actually really helpful for us. It's a warning to us when we think about how to evaluate spiritual maturity and godly character. This verse, maybe more clearly than any verse in the Bible, should give us warning not to automatically conclude that just just because someone is extremely zealous and even extremely zealous for evangelism, that that automatically equals godliness. Jesus says they cross land and sea. And they're full of lawlessness. The reality is that some of the most zealous groups in the world to get their message out are cults. And even Christian cults go out to every corner of the world. In fact, if you go to the rooftop of our church planting team in Puno, Peru... If you go to that rooftop where our brothers and sisters live, you can look down and one block away in Puno, Peru, you can see a Jehovah's Witness compound full of missionaries rotating in from all over the world on mission uh, in Puno, Peru. Now, the context is important. 
thousands of miles away from where they live. And Puno, Peru is one of the highest cities in the world as far as altitude. They're 16,000 miles above sea level. They've left home. They're at one of the highest cities in the world, full of zeal, extreme zeal, to get their message out to the Ayamara-speaking peoples of Puno, Peru. And they're just like this group, religious hypocrites. Be warned by that. Jesus sees right through it. We can fool other people for a long time, sometimes a really long time. But Christ sees right through religious hypocrisy. Religious hypocrites use mission as a way to feed the flesh. Whether they use mission as a rung on the ladder to work their way to heaven. Like I got to do this because I'm working my way to heaven. I got to get those good works in to work my way to heaven. Or whether they use missions as a way to receive praise from men. Religious hypocrites abuse the mission of God. In Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul mentions those who preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. You need to be warned by that, that you can even preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ with a hypocritical heart to outdo somebody else, to make a name for yourself. And the Pharisees were guilty of this. And they made their converts just as much children of hell as they were. And so Jesus indicts them here. Now let me say this. The opposite of the Pharisees' evangelism is not no evangelism. Okay? You're disobedient there too. So it's not, man, they messed it up. They did it you know, for the praise of man. So I'm just not going to do it at all. So you sin there and you sin there. The, the opposite of the, the evangelism of the Pharisees is sincere evangelism. As a servant of Jesus, as obedience to the Lord, trusting in God, not in yourself, not trying to make a name for yourself, a humble servant of Jesus Christ. Not only do they abuse the mission, we also say that, see that they abuse Scripture. And you see this in verses 16 through 22. And you see the kind of ridiculous games... That these men are playing with the word of God. I mean, it's so bad that it's almost like a child, you know, making a promise to their friend and then crossing their fingers behind their back and say, that one doesn't count because my fingers were crossed. That's how backwards this is. You can swear in verse 16 by the temple and it's nothing but if you swear by the gold of the temple, that's a binding oath. Okay? This is word salad games with the word of God. Playing fast and loose with the commandments of Scripture. What does God's word say? It says our oaths are binding. God's word says our yes is to be our yes and our no is to be our no. What do the Pharisees say? Well, they come up with all these extra rules that if these things are in place, man, that oath is not binding. And so they construed a system that allowed them to evade biblical commands. They construed a man-made system that allowed them 
to ignore the word of God. And not only that, not only did they construe man-made doctrines, Jesus also says they neglected the weightier matters of the word of God. Look at verse 23. They showed tremendous concern for a feature of the law of Moses called tithing, which is just a word that means tenth. And I want you to notice the degree that they went to to give God the tenth, the tithe. Jesus says, verse 23, you tithe mint and dill and cumin. These are spices. <laughs> these, are, these are ways that food is flavored. And they are so meticulous in their approach to the law of Moses that they're separating a tenth of their spices and presenting it as a tithe offering to the Lord. And part of you might think for half a second, man, look how zealous they are. They're tithing out of their spice cabinet. Look how zealous they are. But Jesus indicts them because he says at the same time you're you know, tithing from your spices, you're not doing the weightiest matters in the word of God. And so it looks like obedience, 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 but you're really full of disobedience, disobedience, disobedience. He says they left undone the weighty matters of the law. In verse 23, Jesus says these are justice and mercy and faithfulness. You can have a lot wrong in your life. You can get some theology out of whack along the way. But if you have these things, you are on your way. You are living a life that pleases God. They're the weighty matters of the law. We'll come back to that as we close. So they're abusing the mission. They are abusing scripture. I want to show you also they're abusing church history. And you see this in verse 29. And I want to frame this this way. We live in a period right now where there are a lot of retrieval movements going on. You may have never heard that phrase before, but all I mean by that is looking back to old paths, looking back in church history, recovering creeds and confessions and liturgy and the way the church of Jesus has worshipped God, the way the church of Jesus has interpreted scripture. There's a lot of that happening all across different denominations. It, it's, just, it's just part of it. It's part of the... The winds that are blowing in the world that we're living in. And there's a lot of good that can come from that. Of learning from church history. Learning how the church has read the Bible. But sometimes things are talked about in such a way that church history is the silver bullet that we need to move forward as the church of Jesus Christ. It's oversold. And I want you to notice here that these men were eaten up with church history. They loved it. They were eaten up with it. Verse 29 says they venerate dead saints. And even more than that, they decorate their tombs. They love to look back at the servants of God and say, man, we love them. 
We venerate these saints. Godly Jeremiah, godly Zechariah. And they decorate their tombs. But I want us to learn this well. That your mouth and your head can be full of church history. And you can be a flaming hypocrite. Because these men were. They knew it all, looking backwards. But they didn't obey the word of God. They abused church history. And then finally we see that they abused God's servants. And you see this in verse 34. God had been faithful to send his messengers to Israel one after the other. In fact, if you've ever read the minor prophets, really all the prophets, a repeated phrase over and over is God sent to you his servants, the prophets, and he gave you his word and still you didn't turn. That's a major theme in the last part of the Old Testament. God has been faithful to Israel. God has been faithful to warn Israel in the midst of Israel's apostasy. But how has Israel responded? Jesus indicts them in verse 34 when he says this. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. They abuse God's servants generation after generation. And really, as we get to this final paragraph, we see that Jesus is doing more than, not less than, but more than just indicting a specific generation. What we see coming together in this final paragraph is that these men are the climax of a lot and a lot of rebellious generations in Israel. They're finishing it off. They're climaxing the many, many rebellious generations that preceded them. Notice here that Jesus references the blood of Abel in verse 35 and the blood of Zechariah. The blood of Abel and the blood of Zechariah. And he says, you're guilty. Which means that he just pointed back to the Old Testament, pulled a lot of sin forward and pronounced Israel guilty of these sins. Now, just an aside. That allusion to the blood of Abel and the blood of Zechariah is possibly the best place in the entire Bible that you can go to to be instructed that you should reject the Apocrypha. And you're saying, whoa, that points out of nowhere. Okay. This is one of the best places in the entire Bible because that phrase, and I'll tell you why in just a minute, actually shows us what Jesus believes is the Old Testament canon. You say, what do you mean? Our Bible and the Hebrew Bible have the same books, but the order was different. Okay, Our order of our Bible is Genesis to Malachi, right? And it's arranged by genre, okay? The Hebrew Bible 
begins, same books, remember, they're just ordered differently, begins with the book of Genesis, but it ends with the book of Chronicles. And first and second Chronicles are one book in the Hebrew Bible, just Chronicles. Starts with Genesis, ends with Chronicles. And so when Jesus references the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, he's actually referencing the very beginning and the very end of the Hebrew Bible. These are the bookends of Jesus' Bible. Genesis 4, the slaughtering of Abel. 2 Chronicles 24, the martyr of Zechariah, the servant of the Lord. And so notice what Jesus is doing here. As he takes the very first you know, uh, martyr in, in the Old Testament. And then he goes to the very last martyr. In the Old Testament. And he says you're guilty of all of it. All the unrighteous blood. Now what does that tell us? That actually tells us. These are Jesus' bookends to his Bible. In other words. When Jesus thinks about his Bible. The word of his father. What is the Bible of Jesus? Genesis to Chronicles. That's Jesus' Bible. And what I want you to understand. Is that framework right there excludes what is called the intertestamental books, the Apocrypha, the other books that come after, chronologically after Second uh, Chronicles. Uh, Jesus did not hold these books to be authoritative. He did not hold these books to be scripture. Therefore, what should his disciples do? The same thing that Jesus did. Our doctrine of scripture should be the same as Jesus's doctrine of scripture. And so with this reference to the blood of Abel and the blood of Zechariah, Jesus shows us that these men are the latest manifestation of an age-old problem. And that problem is this, the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent. We talk a lot about Grace Community Church, about the seed of the woman in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But in that same verse, we are also introduced to another group, the seed of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent. And we see that seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. We see them in conflict all throughout the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis chapter 4, where Cain, the seed of the serpent, slaughtered. Abel, the righteous, the righteous Abel. And so what Jesus is indicting them is that they are the latest manifestation of this evil seed. And all the righteous blood that's been shed up to this point is going to fall on this generation. Why? Because they are about to seal their fate by shedding the blood of the Son of God, the righteous one. Jesus Christ. And when they kill Jesus, all the righteous blood from all of time is stacked upon top of that. Guilt upon guilt upon guilt. He's indicting them. And these men are leaders in this evil generation. So we've covered the motives of religious hypocrites. We've covered the actions of religious hypocrites. And I want us to see the outcome of religious hypocrisy. And this is clear. It's clear with the repeated phrase all throughout Matthew 23. What's the outcome? Woe to you. 
It doesn't get more serious than this. That's language describing hell. That's language describing God's punishment, God's wrath. It's language that describes the ultimate doom, the outer darkness, where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. All those descriptions that God's word gives us, cast out, away from the presence of the Lord, away from his glorious might. Woe to you is the fitting punishment for faking religion. In other words, what are the wages that are due to you for faking it? For faking to be a servant of God. And Jesus says, hell, woe to you. Hell is the appropriate place for religious hypocrites. Now to anyone here that is concerned that, man, I might be a part of that group. I know there's sure a lot of times in my life where I did fake and I did not fear God. I might be a part of that group. If that's you, I want to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. But before I do that, I want to warn you. This passage reminds us of the urgency of responding to the call of Jesus Christ. And I say that because the language of Matthew 23 is they have passed into a point of no return. Jesus is calling down condemnation on these men. In other words, the time for their turning and their hearing is over and now their ears are being shut and these men are being hardened and Jesus is bringing down the doom. And so I want to remind you of that, that you do not know how many times in your life that God will give you a chance to respond to the gospel. It may be a hundred, but it may be zero more times. You honestly do not know. No, none of us know. And so I want to encourage you to hear the gospel this morning as though this were your last chance to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you that Jesus Christ can save you. He really can. He can really save you. To use some of the language of this chapter, Jesus Christ can crucify your ego. And maybe you're just struggling right there. Man, you don't understand how much I love myself. I tried to turn. He can take the old. He can put it away. He can make you a new man, a new woman. He can crucify your love for yourself. He can clean the inside and not just polish up your life a little bit and get this bad habit out of the way that you just can't shake. He can make you new inside and out. He can give you a new heart. And one of the promises of the new covenant is that he'll take his law, all those weighty matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and he'll carve them into your heart. He'll make you love those things that you've ignored. He can save you. And most importantly, he can take your woe, woe to you. Jesus can take your curse. The Christian gospel is the announcement that because Jesus died for our sin, because Jesus went to the cross and bore our curse, if we trust in him, free grace from God,
All right, we will press forward. Look to Jesus and be saved. Look to Jesus and be saved. Number four. What is our response as the church to religious hypocrisy? And this passage actually mentions several things. The most surprising is in verse 3. So I want you to look there. I want you to notice the surprising command of Jesus Christ. Think about everything we know about the scribes and Pharisees so far. And then I want to see if you catch the surprising piece. In verse 3, Jesus says, Do and observe whatever they tell you. Does that seem off to you? Do and observe whatever they tell you. What do you mean, observe them? They're hypocrites. Okay? Now, what we know from other places in the Gospels is that Jesus is not calling his disciples to observe the oral tradition, those man-made standards that they yoke other people with. Jesus is not calling us to observe those things. But I think this phrase reminds us that the Pharisees didn't get everything wrong. Some of their teaching was right. And where they were right, where they were faithful to Moses, God expects obedience. Do and observe whatever they teach. Now I want to use verse 3 as an application to something that we're seeing all around, especially the past five years, of, of a practice called deconstruction or deconversion. Okay? The fact that Jesus says the holy response to hypocrisy includes also do and observe what they teach. This is a reminder that in hypocritical circles and hypocritical pastors does not always mean that everything that you were taught was wrong. And so many times what we're seeing happen was burned by the church, burned by a hypocritical pastor, and I'll throw Christianity in the dumpster and I'm out of here. I'll turn my back on, on the gospel. I'll turn my back on the church. So we can say it this way. If you have been burned, if you have experienced religious hypocrisy, you are free to reject all forms of hypocrisy and false doctrine. But you are not free to reject the truth of God's word. You are bound by it. Bound by it. Many times when someone is wounded by the church, they're in a vulnerable place of overreacting, throwing out the essentials with what was wrong. And so let this be a reminder to you. Jesus says, do and observe what they teach. Number two. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Remember, this is the contrast to the Pharisees who love those titles. Rabbi. Revered one 
And this stuff still goes on in the church. Reverend, doctor. I mean, there's so many titles. We could go on and on, especially in hierarchical church traditions. Father, all the, all the way down the line, what Jesus is teaching here, and one of the ways that we can respond to religious hypocrisy is that we can build gospel culture at Grace Community Church that exalts Jesus Christ and not men. That's what we can do. That's one of the ways we can undercut religious hypocrisy is not exalt men, only exalt Jesus. And, and you say, well, how would that work? You take the fodder away from those who crave the praise of men. In other words, if you take the fodder, fodder away, if you take all the, uh, the titles that they, that they crave, if you take that stuff away and it's just brothers and we're all brothers and whatever distinctions we have, you know, at the end of the day, we're all brothers and Jesus is our teacher, then you're undercutting what feeds religious hypocrites. And so what should we do? We should go out of our way to speak about other Christians and especially church leaders in such a way that we do not obscure that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Period. We have one teacher, the Christ. Sometimes in disciple-making movements, you hear a lot of language about spiritual fathering or spiritual mothering. And no doubt, this is a biblical metaphor. But sometimes in those circles, the line gets blurred. Is that person you're trying to help grow, are they your disciple? Or are they Jesus' disciple? And this passage clarifies that. They're Jesus' disciple. And all you're doing is serving a supplementary role. You're a servant in God's house, and that's it. Jesus is our teacher. So we should not obscure Jesus' primary role to every disciple. We should make that clear in the way that we speak. In the way that we speak. Verse 8 says, we're all brothers and Christ is our teacher. Jeremiah 31, one of the promises of the new covenant is this, uh, that, that we shall be taught by the Lord. Think about that. That with all the teachers in the church and all the teaching that Christ has set up, at the end of the day, what's true of every new covenant disciple is the Lord taught you that. Not man, the Lord taught you that. God is our teacher. Speaking in this way again accomplishes two things at the same time. It takes away a source of pride, especially in leaders. Rabbi, Rabbi. And it also honors Jesus Christ. He's the head. He's the teacher. And then finally, we should exalt the weighty matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And we should be warned about focusing too much of our attention as Christians in this disordered approach to the Word of God. I mean, there are all kinds of things. There are supplemental things, tertiary things that God's Word does teach. And it is interesting that Jesus says, do the weighty things and the other stuff also. This is not an excuse to not care about other things or disobey uh, uh, clear light from God's Word. But it is encouragement to us. Give our life to these things. Justice. So reference to our duties to the oppressed. Justice is what God's word requires of us. Mercy. Our duties to those who suffer. Justice to the oppressed. Mercy to those who suffer. 
And faithfulness describes our duties to God. In every season of life, in every circumstance you ever find yourself in, what does God require of you? He requires of you faithfulness to Him. The weighty matters of the law. Micah mentions these same three categories, the prophet Micah, same three. And we're going to close our time this morning with reading Micah 6, 8. So we'll read this and then we'll pray together. Micah 6, 8 says this. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for help today. God, we want to obey you. And we pray, God, that you would deliver us from being mere hearers of your word. We want to obey you, Lord. Stir that up in our hearts. We want to be shaped by your word. Lord, we pray that you would sanctify your church today, that you would build us up. God, we pray that you would teach us from this passage of how to speak the truth in love to one another for the building up of the body of Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would increase our desires to live sincerely before you alone. God, we pray that you would increase our hatred for pretending to love you and that you would increase our sincerity and our fear of you. Lord, we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together this morning.